Welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast, and this is a real treat for me. So today's guest, I would go with the cliche, needs no introduction, but my mom watches this, Ken, so I need to tell her. So mom, Ken Hirsch was CEO and the driving force behind Natural Gas Partners. He's now head of the Bush Center here in Dallas. Welcome on, Ken Hirsch. Thanks, Chuck. I'm sorry your mom didn't follow oil and gas private equity to... Need, need she has trading cards, okay. you know, and uh, <laughs> the Marty Phillips card, the Bob Zorch card. But uh, Ken, with all your success, you're good looking, you have a lot of money, all this great stuff. Why would you want to be ad author to your resume? Because the fastest tortoise came out, what, a couple of weeks ago? Yeah. Um, well, it, it, uh, it started about six years ago. Um, my, uh, my goal in writing when I left NGP was uh, originally to do two things. One, to have a chronicle of the firm, because um, the firm really had no history, and there are a bunch of people at the firm now that didn't necessarily know what we had done in the past or where we came from. And, uh, and then I wanted to uh, chronicle something for my future demented self so that I would remember what the hell I did. And I was going to print 50 copies of it, uh, leave 10 on my shelf, um, for my future grandchildren and give 40 to the guys at NGP and, and just go from there. Um, that was the original goal. Then um, I hired an editor and, uh, and, and he set out to, through a series of conversations um, to start talking about the firm. And then he said, well, why'd you do that? Why'd you do that? Well, back up a little bit, back up a little bit. And then after about two of these conversations, he said, you know, I really wasn't gonna like you. Um, we come from different political sides. Um, he's older. He went to Yale. I went to Princeton. He said, but I really kind of like you. And, and your story is kind of interesting, even to me. And I know nothing about finance and nothing about investing. So he said, what if we, what if we modified this a little bit? And, and so then it took on, um, it took on more of a, of, of a, um, I'll call it an appeal, uh, for generalists everywhere. Um, I was a generalist. I had no specific skills. Um, I'm, I have no technical skills, and yet here I was making a living in a technical industry. And there was a lot of stuff in there in that story that that he helped shape that were transferable. And so I'd say now, not only do do the does the crew at NGP have a chronicle more or less of the highs and the origins and the highs and lows of the firm's uh, derivation, um, I have something for my future demented self, which I check that box. But also, I think it's it's kind of an interesting life's lessons uh, book and leadership lessons. And since I've written it, I've had more people tell me that they bought extra copies for their uh, young adult children, and they find it they find those stories in the book to be, I guess, the most interesting. That life doesn't always work out on a straight line, but if you just kind of keep your opportunity set growing, good things will happen. Yeah, and. I'm glad you did it. This kind of goes back to us emailing about it. One of the beefs I've had kind of getting kicked out of the club and kind of watching it from the outside is you figure out when you look at the rest of the world outside our energy bubble, everybody else tells stories, tells their narrative, 
And we in energy just don't do that. We're very, very quiet. We bury our head in the sand a lot. If we do do any sort of energy advocacy, we kind of do it poorly. We throw out facts and figures and the like. And so I'm glad you did it because I think if we want to have a fair discussion about energy here, we have to humanize the people in it. Sure. And I think you did a great job of, of doing that. Well, I'm, I'm glad that came across. I, when I look back, um, it was kind of hard without perspective. Um, when, when you were doing what you were doing and we were growing the firm, uh, this, or, this group of people changed the way that capital got allocated to the U.S. oil and gas industry. If you think about the evolution of natural gas partners, now NGP Energy, um, and the other handful of private equity firms that then morphed into 30 of them, all have started to copy what we had started in a kind of, we learned by trial and error. And that has now become the way that capital gets allocated to domestic oil and gas. Now, go back in time a little bit, the domestic oil and gas industry in the United States changed the world. The unconventional shale revolution was not brought to you by Exxon and Chevron and Amoco and BP. It was brought to you by United States independent oil and gas operators, the entrepreneurship that came from that group of people. And so the story should be told and we shouldn't, we shouldn't bear our heads in the sand because in many ways, what we did made the United States energy independent, liberated our foreign policy, dramatically lowered our natural gas emissions or our CO2 emissions by replacing uh, coal with natural gas and, and changed the, the trajectory of our economy. Um, coming out of the financial crisis, we would not have had the economic growth we had had it not been for the domestic oil and gas industry. So there were so many benefits. And it was brought to you by the independent oil and gas producers financed by a couple dozen private equity firms, which was, when I look back on it, I feel a little bit of pride um, in that, you know, we had something to do with history. No, I mean, because if you think about it, there are shales all over the world, right? And there are a lot of technical expertise all over the world and all these kind. Nobody else was able to do it. It was within kind of that crucible of private ownership of minerals, Correct. private capital, and just good old American entrepreneurship Agreed. that was able to do it. The, 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 the ability to look at some rock and suspend all belief that you had about how to make it work. It really was the age of the engineer. It was a lot of trial and error, right. measure, monitor, and, and be able to do it. And you're right. And I mean, I'd say to this day, Amazon is not sending all these vans around everywhere if it weren't for the shale revolution right. that right. we were able to, uh, to do that. So real quick in the book, there are a lot of great Ken-isms. We're going to go through a lot of them, I'm sure, today. I got to admit, I'm jealous. I am totally a fanboy of Bono, but you've got a picture in the book of you, President Bush, and Bono. Tell me that story. Well, that story, we had, uh, we had the Bush Center, um, we created the uh, George W. Bush Medal for Distinguished Leadership. One of the things I wanted to do at the Bush Center is kind of create a series of traditions that uh, bring the world to Dallas and bring Dallas to the world. And we wanted Bono to be the first recipient of the George W. Bush Medal for Distinguished Leadership. And so um, I got in touch with him. Uh, it turns out, uh, working around a former president, 
um, getting through to most people is about one degree. They of return your call. They return my calls, or we know somebody who's called. They will return, and um, and so I got in touch with them, and uh, and and kind of floated the idea, and and he was amenable, um, primarily because he is on a mission to save the continent of Africa, and he has been a fan and worked with President Bush because of the. Uh, PEPFAR program, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, that was really the signature uh, foreign policy, foreign power, soft power, foreign aid, um, humanitarian um, effort during the Bush administration. In fact, this year we just had the 20th anniversary of PEPFAR, trying to make sure that Congress reauthorizes it, which they need to do. Um, Save 25 million lives um, in the continent and, and basically put the AIDS epidemic behind uh, the continent. I mean, we still need to monitor it, but it's not it's not nearly where it was. That by way of background, Bono has lived this life of kind of a dual life of both a rock and roll guy, but also a, a real big humanitarian. So he and President Bush have, have maintained this dialogue. So I get in touch with him and, uh, and it turns out uh, about the time I was getting in touch with him, he had a concert in Houston, uh, I think it was on a Wednesday, and a concert in Dallas on a Friday. And I said, what are you doing on Thursday? And he said, well, I'll be in Dallas. We'll be rehearsing. I said, well, would you like to go down to the Crawford Ranch and see President Bush, who had given me authorization to, to do this? I don't usually knock on his door and just say, hey, you're home. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so long story short, I ended up, uh, ended up uh, arranging for a helicopter ride. And, uh, and we, went, we uh, had a nice, nice hour and a half ride down to Crawford. Uh, looking at some of the Barnett Shale pad sites as we as we flew probably you know 800 feet over the, off the ground to uh, to get down to Crawford uh, with Bono that day and uh, and it was really interesting. I mean the guy um, I didn't know his whole humanitarian side and not only is he a great entertainer but he is serious as a heart attack when it comes to saving the continent of Africa. And the other thing that's really interesting is he said to me, I need to check with my bandmates if I can accept this award a year from now, because we'll be in rehearsal somewhere. And I'm thinking, you're Bono. What do you mean (laughs) check with your bandmates? And he said, there's four of us and we, we make all decisions together. And I was stunned. Um, And he said, yep. He said, the two things that break up a band are money and sex. And he said that we split everything 25, 25, 25, 25. And we're all married to to our first wives. And I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty impressive. That was really cool. Cause my favorite Bono story is supposedly Jay-Z and Beyonce came to the Bono household to have dinner one night. And the next day, um, I think it's a, a reporter from Rolling Stone, but one of the trade magazines is talking to the daughter and it's like, how was it last night? You had Jay-Z and Beyonce at the house. And the daughter's like, oh, my God. It was so embarrassing. Dad just talked about Africa the whole time. <laughs> and so I've always like, if Bono can't be cool with his kids, yeah. then... Uh, it's universal. Yeah, there's no hope for any of us on <laughs> yeah. that front. The, the other thing I heard about him, and it seems to, to jive with what you're saying, is supposedly Bono was so committed to Africa he would go in and meet with the lowliest member of the State Department and was always very respectful and always very grateful that they would give Bono the time to make his case for this and that truly showed a lot of humility to get this done. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but that sounds very consistent with my experience with him. But 
Um, I couldn't not, I got to sell some books, so I couldn't not put that picture in. Oh, absolutely. I'm jealous. If, <laughs> if I can Photoshop myself in there somewhere, I'm sure, I'm not, sure I will. That picture's on the internet. You can probably do that. Well, you know what's funny is if there's a celebrity within about 250 yards of me, I get the photo with them. I mean, I'm just kind of that guy. You look at my Facebook page, it's me and celebrities. I have not been able to stock Bono yet. So mad respect for you on that oh, front. That's right. Stick with Photoshop. Yeah, exactly. So in the book, you talked a lot about the culture in terms of building NGP and the like. You talk about demanding, uh, does not have to be demeaning, feed your winners, etc. Talk me through that because I, I found that fascinating because, I mean, I'm friend, I've been friends with you, yeah. friends with a lot of the guys. So I saw it from the outside as well as I kind of lived it within Kane. Well, you know, some of this stuff was not natural. Um you know, I'm a, I'm a perfectionist and I want to achieve and all that. But, uh, over, over this, uh, time period, as we grew the firm, uh, looking back again, all this is looking back. I had the gift of being in a single industry investment firm. When I say it was a gift, it was a gift because I had to answer a few questions for myself. First is I want a lot of bright people in the firm doing really good things. Okay. That's easy. Just go hire people. However, there's a problem. If I, uh, if I had a lot of turnover as a firm, then effectively I'm just training future competitors. So out of self-defense, I said, wait a minute, I can't do that. How do I, how do I not have turnover? Well, in order to not have turnover, you have to make sure that people want to stay. For people to stay, they got to feel re rewarded both financially and non-financially. They got to feel appreciated. They got to feel challenged. Um, and, and they got to feel like their responsibility and their ownership is growing all the time. And so we sort of backed in to all those things over the years. And I'm really proud to say for the first, uh, 24 years of the firm, uh, we had one person leave the firm and he went to go be uh, the CEO of one of our CFO of one of our portfolio companies. And, and that turned out to be a, a winning formula. So when I was kind of reverse engineering it, um, it turns out that some of the things I was saying, actually, people listen to. <laughs> so um, the first is the first thing I said is, um, as an organization, you want a high-performing group of people. So my expression was, feed the winners. You got somebody who wants more more responsibility, give it to them. They're excelling, give it to them. Okay, and it might mean that you play favorites. And the answer was, uh huh, I do. But I, but you can't have a quota. You can play favorites, but you, but you want to play all of you, all of them. Well, so, and you have to have real favorites. You know, you got, you can't have fake winners. Um, you can't say, oh, they were my fraternity, same fraternity I was in. So therefore I'm going to favor them. So it's okay to play favorites as long as you really are feeding true winners as a leader. What happens to an organization? The analogy I like to draw is if you were a teacher, would you teach to the top of the class or the bottom of the class? You know, if you want to just get everybody to the next level, you teach to the bottom of the class. In which case, you'll lose the top of the class and everything will collapse and you won't get excellence. But if you teach to the kind of the top or the top middle, it pushes everybody up and it keeps those top people engaged. And as a group, they move forward. I've always thought that American greatness had at least something to do with we are so good at finding our top 5% and putting them in the position to do it. I mean, in whatever subject you're talking about. If you're LeBron James playing basketball, you will be playing in the NBA. Right. We do that really well. We may not do very well with the middle. I think Europe probably does a lot better with the middle. 
but we identify well, top talent. Yeah, we it, do. We get do. it on the field. But I'd say, I'd say, unlike you know the basketball analogy, if the pie is growing, there's enough room for everybody to move up. Okay, and and that middle can excel. But in when you're when in a microcosm in a work in a in a, in a work setting, if you really want a culture of excellence, to me, I want to set that bar and reward people who are going that extra mile. Because here the, here's what happens. Other people will see that and try to model that behavior. Awesome. Then they, they lift their game too. Some people will say, you know what? I don't want to work that hard, but I'm happy to support the people that do. That's okay too. And some people will say, I don't get it. It's unfair. And they leave. That's okay too. I mean, so I look at it and say, knock wood, we had nobody leave. So we did a good job on the hiring side. But you bring everybody forward and you have high expectations and you feed the winners. And I found that that was a really good strategy because it, it energized people. You, don't, you were always challenging. You were always saying, how can we do it better? You can always saying, you know, what, what did we miss if we didn't do something perfectly? No matter what, even, even with good investments. So let me, let me cut you off just yeah. real quick to ask about hiring because people come to me and say, okay, what are your big mistakes you made? And I think the biggest mistake I made in my career at Kane was I relinquished the hiring function. Basically, at the end of the day, early on in my career, when I was in the position, you know, the team would go figure out this is the right person. I'd spend five or 10 minutes with them. They didn't trip over their shoes. And I think in hindsight, it just led to a culture where, I hate to say it this way, but maybe I was just too nice you're way too nice. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> you and maybe my mother will say that. But so how did you do it well, when you were hiring? You know, we had, um, I, I looked at it like a family decision. I mean, I, I became close friends with my partners and our kids played together. We went through life successes and life tragedies together. So my litmus test was not just, would you want to go have a beer with this group, you know, with this person, but would you trust them with your kids? You know, would you would you want to play with have their kids play with your kids? And would you want to hang out with them at dinner? And and do you like them? And 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 it doesn't have to mean that they are like you, but but is there chemistry there? And it's a it's a it's important. And we didn't make any any big hires that that I didn't spend time with. Um, so, you know, it doesn't mean that that it always was perfect. Um, but but the way I looked at culture um, culture is an output, not an input. And when you have two new bodies that show up, congratulations, you have a new culture. If you try to jam those two new bodies into the old culture and force it, you're going to make a mistake because somebody's going to get spit out somewhere. If you say, no, we're now a new culture that has to incorporate these two new people, that's exciting to me. How do you make that happen? What are they adding? Good ideas do not know seniority. Good ideas do not know tenure. You know, And having fresh eyes on things often brings, you know, freshness to the organization. So to me, that that's the culture, that dynamic culture. Um, but you got to have people who, who would buy into it. My other expression is, um, is the foxhole. And I wanted people who were in the foxhole, which means I have their back, they have my back. And if they're in the foxhole, then you can share, gosh, darn, you know, this is troubling me, or I'm having, I'm having, um, uncertain moment. What do you think? Right. If they're not in the foxhole, you would never do that with them. They walk out and say, Oh my God, the guy running the firm is clueless. He doesn't know what's going on. Right. And, and so if, if you create that safe environment 
where people can express themselves and you can express yourself, it's a lot more fun. I mean, it's really hard um, to just be in an organization all the time that's not fun. And I was just, um, I mean, I, one of the greatest gifts was that David Alban and I were matched up by Richard Rainwater early on and we hit it off. And we were partners for 30 years and never had a stitch of paper between us. We would yell at each other and, and debate each other. And in the middle of the debate, we'd end up flipping sides. And, and people, and then we'd say, well, you're crazy. And then all of a sudden, no, maybe you're not so crazy. And people listening were like, what are they doing? Oh, my God. It was the firm <laughs> falling apart. And then we'd say, talk to you tomorrow. You know, I mean, it was, just, it was just the way we interacted. And it was awesome. It was awesome. And then other people joined in. And, and so to me, that laboratory of, of high-performing you know, thinkers is what made the is what made it, and you know we had a pretty good success rate, and so why if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And and we were competitors back in the day, so I used to say this snidely, but you're going to take it as a compliment. I used to say that about NGP; they're the Borg from Star Trek, and y'all really were. I mean, and and that's a that's a compliment. I mean, because I've been called a lot of things, <laughs> but not the Borg. The uh, first, no, you re- you guys really were because uh, in terms of y'all really did have each other's back and stuff. You could you could tell. I'm sure you you would deal with other firms and you would get sniping behind, and you never heard that about right. And I, from NGP, I, I'm glad that you say that because I prided myself in that collegiality. Um, and we we would have spirited debates, but once once we made a decision, lock arms and cowboy up and go forward. And- Do you, this is an observation and agree, disagree, critique it. You and da- David, who I, I feel like I know decently well too, I think a lot of the reason it may have worked is you all seem very different. You know, there's a yin to a yang. And I've, 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 Mike Hines and I have talked about this. I mean, Mike's like my brother. He's trustee of, of my will when I pass away. He would make decisions for my kids, all that good sort of stuff. I think one of the issues we may have had at Kane is we were just so much alike that, that a lot of times I don't know if the greatest amount of debate happened or we wound up creating people more like us and maybe we had some blind spots. Yeah. No, we, David and I complimented each other, um, but we definitely would look at things a little bit differently a lot. Yeah. Okay. I want to hear a war story because this was the, I, I felt like you were kind enough to send me a draft of the book and uh, another compliment. I read it on the way and on the way back from the Motley Crue concert in <laughs> LA. So that's how much I liked the book that I was willing to read it after the Motley Crue concert. I felt so, you, like, so you probably remember the first part of the book better than you remember the second, <laughs> the part. second part of the book. Yeah, we, uh, me and the girlfriend had a lot of fun at the uh, Motley Crue concert. Okay, so reading the book, the one story I'd never heard before, because I felt like I'd heard bits and pieces of at least most of the stories, the 1999 Santa Fe Conference where you reopened NGP6. Tell that story, because that one blew me away. I had no idea this happened. Which is good. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. Fair good. enough. The book recounts a story of, of the worst investment we ever made uh, at, uh, during that time period was a Canadian deal um, where we ended up losing uh, 20% of, of a fund, Fund 5. And 
I don't need to go into the book to chronicle it, but um, but it was a series of of build up acquisitions where the first deal worked great with the guy, second deal worked great, third deal worked great, fourth deal he wanted to go for it. We went big and it didn't work, and so we kind of mortgaged the success of the first, second, and third build up to on the fourth. But as part of that deal, um, one of the reasons that that deal didn't go through was because um, the final funding of the deal needed to happen uh, two days after uh, the um, long-term capital management blew up, uh, which was when uh, in the late 90s, uh, which was a, a mini global financial crisis. And that was a okay? big deal. It was a very big deal. Front page Wall Street very Journal, big everybody's talking Correct. about it. And it coincided with Russia defaulting on their debt. And the price of oil went from uh, about $30, high 20s, and down into the teens. Um, we had had a bank commitment, and the bank commitment was in two tranches. Or not two tranches, just the first half. We needed the first half of the money on a Tuesday and the second half of the money on the Thursday for the transfer agent. I don't want to get into the specifics. So our bank decided not to fund the second one. And they said, wait a minute, there's been a material change. And I said, not between Tuesday and Thursday. Why would you fund the first one? You know, they started saying, well, the last two months, this has happened, this has happened. I was, no, 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 time out. So um, long story short, we had, we, we, had a de- we had a debate. And we had a debate about whether we should sue the lender or we should, we should really try to roll up our sleeves and work this thing out. And we made the decision to roll up our sleeves and work this thing out. And so we, um, we, we focused a team almost full-time on the company. We brought in new management. We came up with idea after idea after idea. And at the end of the day, the bank said, sorry, we're putting to work out and we're going to fire sell the assets. In the middle of that period, we had Fund 6 fundraising going on. And we had, uh, so we got to a point where Fund 6 was ready to close. During that time period, uh, we, the, the broken deal was still work in process and we'd been writing it down, but we were still hopeful because the bank was still telling us, no, no, we just need to restructure it and then we'll find a new structure. We'll, we'll still give you the money. Um, at the end of the day, that didn't happen. So we were at our Santa Fe seminar, which we did every other year. We brought all of our investors together and our portfolio companies in a big strategy session and a lot of fun. And we basically said, we understand that you may not uh, still like us. <laughs> and at our, this was at our annual meeting. At the very end of our annual meeting, we laid out the case on this company called Sonoma, what exactly happened. And we said, if you would like to pull your commitment back, we understand. And we said, we're going to have an executive session without us, and all of you folks can talk. And we got up at the end, of the, it was the end of the meeting, we got up and we left. And we just let them talk, which is unheard of in the investment world, to let your investors talk with each other about you when you're not in the room. And let's take it yeah. a step further. You don't even want your investors to know who the other investors Correct. are. Correct. I mean, you, that's always a blank page of Correct. the exhibit. Of but, other- but I, you know, to me, it was like, it's their money. It's not my money. It's their money. If they don't want to keep it with me, why am I, I'm not stealing it. You know, I didn't want to keep it if, it if it was on false pretense. So we were we ran our business with just we were an open book. We never hid our investors. In fact, we got them together because we wanted our investors to talk to each other and to talk to our portfolio companies and let them know how asset allocation works and why they're getting this kind of money. It really helped our business. So in this case, in the in this summer, we left and um, and there was a there was a an avid discussion, an active discussion among the uh, the people. One LP in particular said, um, 
that they thought we were putting our relationship with the bank ahead of our relationship with the LPs, that we should have sued the bank. And, and we made the decision not to. If we'd sued the bank, 10 years later, we might still be, or 20 years later, we might still be in litigation with them. It, it would just go right. into a pile of right. all the things they weren't funding at that point in time and all the lawsuits that they had. We might as well just shoot the, shoot the, the fund entirely. But instead, but in, we chose to work it out. And in and in fairness to that LP, just to give the audience some context, there was one uh, bank at Kane that, when COVID hit, uh, our companies had one point two billion dollars borrowed from across multiple funds. So it's easy to sit there and say, "Well, hey, I'm only an LP in Fund Five. Why aren't we being right. aggressive against right. this bank?" Right. You're just doing it because of fund six, seven, right. four, exactly. three. Exactly. So, so it's, that's it's, what the, so, it's so, a fair and, and that's, concern. That's fine. And I said, and I said, look, if you all want to reopen it, reopen it. One LP stood up in that meeting, and I did have a mole in the meeting. One of our portfolio company CEOs stayed around um, to just answer questions because he was very close with us. And one LP, um, and it was corroborated by him, stood up and said, mark my words, fund six will be their best fund. I'm leaving my money in fund six. And, and so uh, and that was just kind of anecdotal. So Fund 6 was a $450 million fund, $80 million withdrew. So it turned into a $370 million fund. Okay, That fund earned over seven times its money. Um, so I was really excited to talk to the people, that, the $80 million that went away. Um, <laughs> but, but that's unbelievable. And give me the short version of you, David whoever else was part of that discussion on even hatching that plan. Well, was there a lot of discussion or was it just, hey, we ought to do it, it's the right thing and it's everybody? A, yeah, it was, it, it's like this is not even a consideration. Why would, you, why would you not do it? I just I remember like it was yesterday. I mean, at that meeting, um, we, we had a presentation. We went through very factually the whole company. We talked about the lessons learned. And we basically said as a result of that company, we got to be confident that it did not indict our business model. And the same conditions that were pinching Sonoma were creating opportunity for all of our other portfolio companies. So we used less leverage, we were less concentrated, et cetera. And that was some of the lessons learned, but we didn't lose confidence in ourselves. We didn't lose confidence in our business model. Nobody cheated, nobody lied, nobody stole. The guy who was in charge of that deal Later, I found out I was one of his references. Three years later, I get a call from somebody. He said, you're on Rick's reference list for a new job. And I'm like, he lost 20% of our money. <laughs> are, you, are you kidding me? And I said, but I was on his reference list. Nice guy. I mean, hardworking. I mean, that's the thing. When you're talking to honest people, we're in a volatile business. The wind can go from our back to in square in our face really quickly. And it doesn't mean you're a bad person. And so we never lost sight of that. And I treated our investors that way, treated our portfolio companies that way, treated our teammates that way. And at the end of the day, I, I can look back and say we did it right. And, you know, the big, the big um, casualty of that deal was that um, because I got gun shy about putting 20% of the fund in any one deal, in fund six, I had called, capital called 15% of the fund um, to put into one deal. And I chickened out and said, let's only put 10%. And that fund earned, that deal earned 40 times its money. And that was energy transfer. Mm -hmm. So the funny story I have from that um, was I was sitting there relatively new to Kane Anderson at the time. And Billy Quinn and I have been friends uh, for a long time. And 
Billy and I were talking and he says, oh, yeah, we're going to go out and bring in some external capital on energy transfer, only we're going to do it as a preferred. Since we stepped up, took the risk, you know, we're going to ask for a 20 percent conversion premium or whatever it was. And I said, all right, well, can you send me the book and or whatever it was? Sure. I read it. Walked into uh, Bob Sinat and I was like, hey, we ought to do this, blah, blah, blah. And Bob said, I will never be junior to Ken Hirsch. <laughs> and so our co investors made 20 times their money on that deal. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly so, right. So I, you know, that, but that was a good lesson. Um, you know, for all of us, don't, don't look at what the other guy's making. Are yeah. you happy making what you're making? No, that's and, exactly and, right. And uh, anyway, it was, that was the casualty of that, of that fund that had the loss in it. Yeah. Was that it, it, it made me gun shy of going that big on something that I was excited about. Sometimes uh, the most misleading thing is personal experience. Yes. And so, yeah. Anyway, so it worked out okay. One other thing I want to touch on in the book, because I think you did this better than anyone, except maybe me, of course, but you use humor really well. You were always the, the best at that. And there's a, I, I'll, I'll get you to tell the story out of the book about Richard Rainwater's funeral. Because I find that just, that that's an awesome story. And I love the fact that you did that. You know, the great thing about Richard Rainwater is he was always upbeat. He had an electric personality. Uh, he made you feel like you were the only one in the room and that you could do anything. He would say, Ken, think big. Think big. Somebody's got to, you know, and I'd say something. He goes, that's not big enough. You got to think bigger. You know, I mean, just, and he was just goading you on, but he was that kind of person. And he had that impact on so many people. Um, so at his funeral, and he was also very casual, um, he was much more comfortable in, uh, in a workout outfit, gym shorts, and his gray Stanford Business School t-shirt, which he walk, walk, worked out in every, almost every day. If you went to his office, people dressed up, go see him, and he'd say, oh, come with me. And he'd go change, and he'd be there on the treadmill or, or on the elliptical while you're sitting there in a suit next to him pitching some deal. And he's That's working, great. he's working out. But so um, this funeral was at a big stuffy church in downtown Fort Worth. Richard, as far as I knew, wasn't a big churchgoer. And, uh, and so I had this idea. So I secretly um, decided, because, but I wanted to leave myself an out. I decided to put um, black workout shorts and a gray Stanford Business School t-shirt underneath my suit because I was asked to give a eulogy at the funeral. This is in September of 2015. And I said, I, so I, I, I said, this could be something memorable to really honor Richard because he wouldn't want a stuffy funeral. So, but I didn't know I was going to do it or not. So at the end of the day, I put on white socks, got up in the morning, put on white tube socks, put black socks on over them put put on black gym shorts instead of my boxers and put on a gray t-shirt instead of an undershirt and put a suit on on top of that. Go to the funeral, walk down. I, I had a, a pair of sneakers in a brown bag under my arm. And I walked down the center aisle and they said, you're going to be up there on the, on the pulpit. And I, and I lean over to John Goff, who's a dear friend and who was in the rainwater office in the early nineties. We go back that far. And I said, Hey, John, he said, Hey, how you doing? I said, listen, I got a favor to ask. And uh, he didn't know what I was doing. I said, look, I, I may do something that either is going to be really funny or could fall flat as a pancake. 
I need you to clap, laugh, cheer, something. Okay, just bail me out. He goes, I got gotcha. you. So I said, okay, good. So I felt like, okay, I got he's somebody, somebody out there is going to have my back. Get up there. First two eulogizers were very serious, and and they played the Ava Maria, and it was all very, very remorseful. And I said, I got to do this because this is not Richard. So I stood up um, and didn't say anything, and I took off my tie, and then um, I took off my jacket and threw it on the floor, and I, I took my cufflinks off. And I undid my belt, started, started unbuttoning my shirt while I was taking my pants off. And in about 10 seconds, you could hear some rumbling. I didn't get all the way. I had the brown bag and I said, screw that. And I put it, put that, dropped it. And, uh, and I pulled off my socks and then I moved away from the, the lectern. And I stood there with my arms extended in white socks, black trunks, and a gray t-shirt and everybody erupted and started clapping and laughing. And I said, this is how Richard would be here. And there was, you could feel the entire congregation exhale and it was fantastic. And then I went on to talk about how Richard got us to do things we'd never do, like strip down in front of 600 people in front of an audience, which included senators and everything else, you know, in downtown Fort Worth. So it turned out to be great. Um, Afterwards, I walked by John Goff and I said to him, you know, he said, Ken, that was bold. And I said, well, I knew knowing that you had my back, that you were going to laugh or cheer or something gave me confidence to do it. He goes, well, I didn't think I was going to do that. <laughs> and I was like, God, he was going to leave, going to hang me out to dry. <laughs> anyway, that was the that was the story. But um, I've, I've come in, I've run into people since then. And they said, I know you, you were the guy that took your clothes off, you know, because maybe there were a thousand people there. It was pretty, it was pretty amazing. But I, you know, to me, it, it just felt right. You know, here's a guy that lived large and he had an impact on people. And it's like, as soon as I did that, everybody in the audience was remembering their Richard story. And it made it that much more electric. Because, you know, one of the things we were talking about storytelling earlier and how important it is. When you look at the psychological data on how to convince somebody or change someone's mind, the three top ways are, number one, ask questions. That's why the Socratic method's so good. Two is scare them, uh, which is what environmentalists have done a pretty good job of. But number three is make them laugh. And the key to that is make them laugh, not you laugh. And so connecting on that emotional level and what you did there was really good because you didn't get up and spew facts and figures about Richard. You know, he made this much money or he did this. No, you... None of that matters. Yeah. At the end of the day, none of that matters. I mean, I think when I look back on things, um, again, one one of the things I was fortunate about was I landed in a technical industry with no technical background at all. Okay. So I, you could show me a log and I couldn't read it. Okay. You could show me a seismic line. I couldn't read it. So how do you evaluate a deal? Let's put all that crap away. What are you passionate about? When you get up in the morning, what are you excited to do? Why are you excited about that deal? Talk to me. How much of your own money do you want to put in? And just, you just, what else did you see before you got to that one? You know, and you just listen and, and you can, I'm not going to say it's easy, but you spend enough time peeling those, those layers away 
you can tell their conviction in that deal before you before you even open the book. And I could tell people who are just there to transfer risk from them to me. If that's the case, I'm out because I can't evaluate the risk. Right. Right. I'm not going to do a third for a quarter deal because I can't evaluate it. Right. Right. If there's somebody looking for a partner because the deal's too big for them, but they're going to cash out some of their IRA, they're going to take some of their savings, they're going to do this and they're going to do that and scrape together and put it in, but they just need more and they're looking for a partner. Now we're talking. Right. And why are they so excited on this? Because they spent four years looking at this and this and this and this and before they got to this and the other ones they didn't want to do or they learned this, they learned that. And now they're into this one. I mean, to me, I could get it down to where I could say, is this a decent bet without even looking at it? And so to me, that was the gift. Make it a people business. And I made my firm a people business. I made my investment process a people business. And and if you if you if you pick great people good things happen. If you pick people who are winners, they'll win. Okay. And, and the deal we're looking at, I mean, 10 years from now or seven years from now, we go to exit. This is going to be largely depleted. So what we have to go sell is what you do with the cash flow off of this plus our money. The cash flow could be plus or minus 10% or 20%. It's not going to make that big a difference if the management team wasn't any good or if the management team was outstanding, it didn't make any difference. So so many people when we were getting started thought we were crazy because we didn't have that much engineers on staff. And, and I, w- I would get frustrated when people would say, well, let's get an engineering consultant to tell us what to do. I'm like, why would we have a consultant who spends a weekend with this asset tell us m- more about it than the guy that's been living with the asset for as long as he or she has been living with it, evaluating it, whatever, to bring it to us? <laughs> I mean, it just made no sense. So anyway, that's how we did it. So to me... People, stories, life, family, it all goes together. And that's what made it fun. And, and I think that's, that was the secret to our success. Well, it was really interesting hearing you talk about that is, and I will do a mea culpa here. One of the things we did at Kane early days, our third person on the energy funds was Mike Hines, Netherlands Sewell Reservoir Engineer, best guy on the planet and all. But Bob Sinat sitting in Los Angeles was, I want to understand the assets. And so we started adding equal parts finance and engineering. And early days mistakes we made when we would deep dive them, because at least we were intellectually honest enough to get in the conference room and go, okay, what did we miss? What we actually figured out is sometimes our engineering was so much better and we understood the asset better than the team. And we were like, oh, okay, great. We've got this great asset but the team wasn't able to execute. And so anyway, then exactly. you, you come back and exactly. Ken's like, it's about the people. And, and so that, that, uh, well, I, I would always just, we would, we would um, benchmark our returns to other people and say, we got better returns and they got a bunch of engineers. Yeah. Uh, something's not, we're doing just fine. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. anyway, I'm, I'm not, um, I don't want to indict, you, you know, different people have different, different styles. And that's what makes the world go round. But this worked for us because I bet if I had a petroleum engineering degree, I would have been different. And, and I might have approached the business, may have done better. Who knows? But it worked out as our. Where we got to that, um, that really wound up working was we figured out that having the engineers around, they could understand the latest and greatest in technology. And we had at least one company in every basin. So you're seeing all the latest and greatest in technology. And being able to see, you know, a fine mesh sand frack in a certain basin and they're not using it elsewhere, 
If you could then call a really talented management team and say, hey, fine mesh sand is working great on this kind of rock. And that management team would go, oh, that's the Jones formation. Right, right. Let's go get some of that and test it. That's where we yeah. figured out that it finally worked. But we let our portfolio companies do that kind of communication. We didn't want to be the ones to facilitate that. We did We did a little bit of it um, in a lot of ways, but we those Santa Fe seminars we referenced, we brought our portfolio companies together. And, and they, we do, and, and we would wind up doing that too. Yeah. It yeah. was it was it was the engineers being able to see ah that might have apl- applications for right. other okay. so it was great. So okay. Ken, you've been really cool to talk with me this long. One of the things I kind of like to do is end the podcast with five questions. Now okay. I give you this disclaimer: I've never had a guest get all five questions right. Are you ready for the quiz? I will. Hopefully, I'm consistent with all of your other guests. (laughs) All right. Question number one. What was the first producing oil well in the Permian Basin? No idea. The Santa Maria number one, which was near Big Lake, which is kind of Reagan County. That was May 28, 1923. The, The story goes, don't know if this is true, the guy's bringing in a drilling rig into the Permian Basin um, he's unloading it from the train track from the train. He takes it a little ways and the rig falls off the cart or however he's getting it there. And he says, well, I've got so much money. I'm going to drill right here. There you go. And he drilled right there. You're drilling in the middle of a lake. I guess you're going to find water. Exactly. So <laughs> he, he, he hits the oil. Well. Five years later, he goes back and drills his original prospect that it doesn't work. The, uh, do you know the, um, Spindletop field never paid out. I had not heard that never statistic. Paid out. Really? All the pictures spewing and spewing and all the rest and every all the derricks there, that field never paid out. Because they drilled it to death and they finally got to the end and that's, overdrilled it. That's crazy. The, the Santa Rita, number one, was actually on land owned by the University of Texas. And I don't know if you've heard Mark Hauser's joke about this, but university lands, UT owns two-thirds of it, A&M owns one-third, and his running joke is, what does that prove? A&M chose first. So I I do like that one. All right, so you're 0 for 1. True or false? Question number two. If you return a book late to the Bush Library, you have to sit through a reenactment of the 2000 Florida recount. (laughs) False. False. (laughs) False. All right. There you go. There you go. You're one for two. We were talking about this earlier with the shale revolution. So question three, private ownership of minerals is unique to the United States. Basically, landowners own the minerals underneath their land. The rule of capture, if you will. Can you name the, the court case that actually first established this principle? I have no idea. This is really good information, Chuck. Tuttle versus Long, which was decided by the Kansas... I was about to guess Tuttle versus Long. (laughs) The Kansas Supreme Court in 1892. So, there you go. Thank you for that. There you go. I hope your mother's listening because she... She will now have have the Tuttle case to close. She will have the Tuttle case. That's great. Um, Question four. You have two kids getting married this year, as I understand. What advice are you going to give them on their wedding day? What advice are you going to give their spouse on the wedding day? I have no advice for my kids. I always say I enjoy the fog of the future. Let it excite them. And don't overscript it. Don't overthink. And uh, don't overplan. 
Because when you start doing that, what you're also doing is you're closing off opportunity. I like that. There you go. They're on their own. They're on their own. I'm here if they need me. There you go. I like that. All right. Question five. Final question. You are three out of four, or no, two out of four. Uh, although you almost said Tuttle versus Long. So no, I didn't say Tuttle versus I'll, Long. I'll give you I have, credit. And, and the other one was about my kids. That's not even a question. Yeah, well, you I'm got not, it right. I've got to give a softball in there somewhere. All right. Question number five. We talked about David Albans. Y'all had an amazing partnership. You talk about it in the book, how you trust, it, uh, trust each other and all that. In the relationship, who was Big Spoon? Who was Small Spoon? What are you talking about? <laughs> Pass. Pass. There we go. Ken, you were awesome to come on. This was very cool. Chuck, you're a good guy, and uh, and I'm glad you enjoyed the book, and hopefully it adds a little bit of texture to a great run at the firm and also um, helps people figure things out. And, and in all seriousness, thank you for writing it, because I truly believe if everyone involved in our industry wrote a book like this, shot a video, put it on Instagram, wrote a LinkedIn post along the lines of this stuff, we as an industry would be in much better shape than we are today. Well, it's, it's been a good ride. 